Hello, I'm Scott Beardsley here today with Shamina Singh, president of the MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth, which works to advance sustainable economic growth and financial inclusion around the world. Shamina, welcome. Thank you. She has also led government and public affairs at Nike and in 2015 was appointed by President Obama to a six-year term on the board of the Corporation for National and Community Service. At the heart of your work is inclusion and access to the global economy for everybody. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about the main challenges to creating access in certain parts of the world and what is actually working to help those people overcome the challenges? Well, Dean Beardsley, thank you for having me here. I'm delighted to be part of the UVA program for the day. I'm from Virginia, so this is a real treat for me to be here. Um, Welcome back home. Well, thank you. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's an incredibly interesting time to be in the space around inclusion and access, especially when it comes to things like financial services and um, digital financial inclusion, which is our main focus. When we think about people who are uh, sort of left behind, which we mm -hmm. obviously this is a huge issue that as as digitization and the power of technology has increased the possibility of what may happen, the truth of the matter is unless we think about the people who actually are using this technology or who have the ability to increase their productivity uh, because of this technology, we're only solving half the equation. And so uh, so the types of technology and the types of things that I think are being created and invented real time that I'm mo most fascinated by are the things that are happening really at the bottom of the pyramid, the things that are mm -hmm. happening to serve people who today, about two billion people, are currently uh, completely locked out of any kind of formal financial system. So the technologies that are being created to make sure that those people uh, have the access and an ability to fulfill their own human economic potential mm -hmm. are the things that I'm uh, yeah. increasingly excited about. So what's an example of an exciting technology or story that might bring this to life? Sure. So uh, I said that I'm born and raised in Virginia, but my parents are from India. And uh -huh. so uh, one of the interesting things that we learned uh, at MasterCard when we were going into the space of digital financial inclusion and the power of bringing people into the formal economy is that certainly there are techn technological challenges. Mm -hmm. But the truth is we found that identity was a major blockage and a major barrier to people participating in the economy. So a very personal example, uh, my mother and my aunts were born without birth certificates in India. So mm -hmm. uh, for women to be born without birth certificates, their ages are tracked by much more informal methods. For my family, it was a rope and a, a, a knot in a rope every year. So you can imagine when yeah. you don't have that type of access uh, with a piece of paper saying, I am who I say I am, or you are who I say I am. Your ability to transact and engage in any kind of uh, formal or credible uh, economic activity is severely hindered. And so while we look at all of the opportunity that comes with the technology, so the power of the phone, yeah. both the feature phone and the smartphone to transact and, and, and allow people to uh, even reach greater heights, um, we have to make sure that we're also thinking about the uh, practical barriers, the pragmatic barriers, yeah. identification, birth certificates, mm -hmm. um, proximity to services, electricity, uh, connectivity, things like that. So uh, working uh, in India with the Aadhaar program, which has been 
uh, a very powerful program where they have unmasked started an identi mass identification where they're taking the, the machines out into the field to get folks registered. It's a, it's a massive human undertaking and the power of what that will be, the, the power of what we'll be seeing over the next few mm -hmm. years because of programs like that are almost unfathomable. So do I get it right that the cell phone, the smartphone, the, the spreading of technology, for example, through handsets is one of the enablers that's making a difference? It's a, it's a massive enabler. Um, yeah. And again, like any technology, it is an enabler. It's sort of what you do with that technology yeah. that's, that's the real differentiator. And so uh, as we think about digital financial inclusion, we see the phone as an amazing, uh, a very powerful enabler. Because what we're finding is that even if you have access, so say you get a bank account and you have an ability to uh, save or yeah. earn, and you have a safe place to put it. Because remember, the problem is that if you're dealing in an informal economy, you're really dealing in a cash economy. Yes. And when you're dealing in a cash economy, the cost, uh, the personal cost, the professional cost, the violence, the corruption uh, that comes in dealing in a cash economy is a, is a big inhibitor hmm. of productivity. So even when you get to a place where you have maybe your, you have an account, you have your identity, you have an account, you have money flowing into that account, if you have nothing to do, if you have no place to spend digitally, then you're really, it, again, it's only half of the equation. Yes. So with the phones, what we're seeing um, is an ability to transact with small merchants. So if you're, a, uh, oftentimes the small business owner is also the customer, <laughs> yes. and it's a family affair and things like that. So the ability to focus on acceptance, the ability to focus on not only access, but what we call usage. Mm -hmm. So usage is the ability to actually transact. So making sure that we're working to provide the technology and the enabling environment on both sides of the transaction so that yes. there is incentive to actually operate in a digital environment. It's a huge priority for the work that we're doing. So you recently returned from the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. What were some of the interesting conversations you had there, and how is the global community looking to support inclusive economic growth? It was, an, it was, a, it was a very large topic. I mean, it was high on the agenda. The theme this year at the World Economic Forum was responsive and responsible leadership. And it couldn't be come at a more timely yeah. uh, uh, opportunity for us. And so uh, the types of conversations that we were engaging with focused on inclusive growth really were about this idea of when technology is outpacing um, the ability for people to actually use the technology, yeah. how do you close that gap or how do you bridge the possibility with the productivity? And those were the types of conversations that we were having were about humanitarian aid, for example. So one of the things that we announced there was a partnership to create a social enterprise uh, within MasterCard that allows us to help digital aid, humanitarian aid organizations mm -hmm. actually convert cash humanitarian aid to digital humanitarian aid. Hmm. And so I'll say just a little bit more about that. Sort so of that like texting money? Is well, that you know, it, uh, close. So, for example, if you're right now in the current system, um, if you are a refugee, you are getting, um, usually there are aid agencies who provide vouchers or they provide paper vouchers and things like that that say you'll get 10 bottles of water, mm -hmm. two blankets, and three tents or whatever those things are. Yes. But they're commodity-based 
paper vouchers. Well, if you're, if you're fleeing to a country like Jordan, for example, um, where we've enabled two million refugees to actually carry um, digital cards that say, when you show up in a local economy, so you use your payment to go to a local merchant that supports the Jordanian, the Jordanian economy, you can show up with that payment and say, uh, I'd like to, you know, two bottles of water, but it's in, in, in three tenths or, or whatever that is, but they can deduct it from your yes. account digitally. Yes. What we've seen happen in the past is when you show up with a piece of paper, sometimes what happens is if you have a middleman that may not be operating on the right incentive, they take your entire voucher. Yes. They give you no change. <laughs> they give you no, they don't give you, they don't tell you you have credit yeah. for three bottles of water That's or right. three tenths or things like that. So it shifts the power of the, pur the purchasing power to the consumer, yes. which, is, which is the way you want it to be. Mm. And it brings, and by doing so, you also bring the dignity and the respect that comes yes. with uh, being a consumer in an economy. Mm. And by the way, it helps the, it helps the Jordanian economy. And, and, and also we're working very closely with the World Food Program in Lebanon to, to do similar types of programs. So really trying to build out the economic infrastructure in the countries where refugees are fleeing yes. so that hopefully they can, they, the, the, the livelihoods and their economic benefit will stay. And maybe they will be able to find the, serve the economy, find the opportunities that allow them to to settle in place. Great example. Uh, you, you came to UVA today to discuss the role of public-private partnerships with our Tri-Sector Leadership Fellows Program. So what are you, what are you going to tell them about uh, these partnerships and the private, what the private sector can do to make a positive impact on the world and on society? Well, I'm really excited to be here mm -hmm. because I think that Tri-Sector Leadership and public-private partnerships in particular are absolutely essential to where we are going as an economy and also what works in the economy. Yeah. So for these students who are developing the skill set for all sectors of the economy, to be able to come out of UVA and participate in the types of uh, arrangements that we're negotiating every day is going to be massively influential to how the, all of this proceeds in the next few years, quite frankly. The power of public and private to work together is only driven by trust, as, mm -hmm. as, in, as in most relationships. And so as we seek to build bridges between public sector organizations like the United States government or the World Bank mm -hmm. or the IMF and companies like MasterCard, Unilever, uh, Coca-Cola, it's an enormous opportunity to leverage the resources and the assets of the private sector to bring to bear um, for human need and real human need. And so it's a lovely melding of the yeah. investment, the innovation, and the scale that the private sector brings in order to leverage public sector funding, public sector incentives to make those things much more impactful and to go much further. Hmm. So let's talk a little bit about big data. I find it fascinating that you champion big data as an area of private sector expertise that can be leveraged to help society. How can business, how can businesses, you know, use uh, big data and how will it make a difference? It's a fascinating topic uh, and it's a timely topic. So my own view is if I think about income inequality as the issue of uh, our generation, I think about information inequality as the, as the issue for our time. Yes. So what we're seeing is a massive increase and in, in massive abundance of, of data. 
Um, and what we're also seeing is the beginnings, frankly, of, of how we use this data. So like technology, data is, is, is an incredible enabler, but it has to be an enabler of something positive. Yes. And, uh, and so what we're working on is what we've coined something called data philanthropy. And so at the MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth, we've said we sit inside an incredible company that has access to technology, data, investment, and expertise. Um, how are we making sure, or how are we helping make sure that all of this transaction data that is anonymized and aggregated, how can we use it for social impact? So it's an, it's an incredibly exciting time to think about how you take the power of data and use it for social good. Now, you'll, you know this better than I do, um, and, and I'm, I'm sure the UVA community has a lot of experience with this, but um, in, the, in, in the private sector side, they're building out the capacity for the commercial use of, of data to make better decisions, evidence-based decision-making. But how do we make sure that in the social side, we're building the same capabilities, or at least trying to build out capacity so that this divide doesn't increase any more than it needs to? I often think that for folks in the social sector, they don't even know that they're in a war right now around yes. data. They, they have no idea that they even need to build out this capability. But unless we start to really think about capacity building around data access and data analytics in the public sector, especially in the social sector, I really fear that we're going to create something much worse than uh, the income divide. So do you see that, so do you see that affecting universities? So data-based philanthropy for social sure. good, so universities are that. Do you, do you expect to see a lot more use of big data by universities or not-for-profit organizations to make a difference? Is that, sure. what, is that what you're Well, I think projecting? that the, 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 the partnership piece that we're, that we're currently working on at the center is about making big data actionable data. So mm -hmm. really translating big data into analytics and actionable insights that can be used to do something. We've actually partnered with um, universities and think that universities are probably the best partners uh, to help advance the research. So uh, we made okay. a we've made a data grant to a professor who has um, who's been working on a particular type of economic research for the last decade, and he came to the center and said, "Look, I I'd love your I'd love your investment in the research, but the the truth is I'd love access to your data to help accelerate my research." Mm -hmm. And that was the first time that we worked with um, in a university setting to say. How do we make how do we make the secure transaction available? How, how do we and so that's only something a university can do, create the secure environment for us to partner in the same way to allow this data access yes. uh, to happen in a real way. But we really see universities as a critical partner to accelerate yeah. the research that's either already happening or help us think about things we haven't even asked the questions mm. about. And yeah, so I would yeah. say universities are very much the, the partner for this. So now that we're on the topic of research, I was wondering, you know, what do you think would be particularly interesting areas for, f for a school like Darden or top business schools to think about conducting research that could make a difference? Do you have any suggestions for what our, our faculty or others should be thinking about? Well, sure. I mean, to the extent that Darden has already sort of created something called the Tri-Sector Leadership Program. There's already this thinking about how are we leveraging all sectors of the economy to increase economic growth and advance uh, financial inclusion, inclusive growth, and things like that. So one thing I would say is to 
ask the questions that nobody else is asking around the impact of data. Are these things around technology actually working? Assessment programs. One of the things that um, our, uh, our community of influencers are telling us that they really need is they want actionable uh, bite-sized information that they can yeah. execute against. So it's important for the macroeconomic research to happen, and we have to continue to fund that and support that. But at the same time, I think there's a gap between the research that actually gets produced and the actionable um, insights that really need to come out of it. So helping us, or, help, and, or us helping you, think through who needs to know this information? What yes. can they do with this information? How do we move it from the theoretical to the practical and yep. the pragmatic? And I think that the students here at Darden are great ambassadors for those kinds of translating what can happen in the academy into the real world. And that's what I'm really looking forward to with the conversation with the students today is how do we act as intermediaries of information, um, which I think is a unique place that the school might consider. That's interesting. We have what we call global consulting projects that any mm -hmm. student can shape their own research area and go out in the field and, and study a given area. And maybe there are some possible areas to collaborate on that. They're always looking for a company or a geography or some combination of the two. And it sounds like with all the data that is emerging right. to the extent that it can be made available, that that is, that is a robust uh, terrain to, to Absolutely. Mine. And we actually have a history of working with the university around these student projects. So we have hosted some of your students, I think, for the past couple of mm -hmm. years to take on uh, meaty yeah. research projects that we use. It's, most, it's been interesting because I think that it has had social impact, but at the same time, it's also had commercial impact for us. And so these students are so smart and so interesting and so motivated that we can give them really tough problems and they can really help us think through uh, how to solve them. And they're willing to go in market, which is the best part of this, is that we really support the entire experience. So the question, the question development, where it fits into our business, where we're going to be using it, and then what do we need to do to make sure that they have the access to the necessary funds, certainly, but the people that they need to have access yes. to in market to produce the best possible research for us to, to capitalize on. So it's a great partnership. So what is your estimate for the, call it the information or the digital have-nots in the world right now? I mean, we've, we've come through a period of time where there's been a dramatic uh, increase in the number of people with cell phones and access mm -hmm. to telephone technology, but how many folks out of the, what is it, seven and a half or eight billion people we have in the world do you feel being at risk of not being connected to the inclusion? Uh, well, here's the, okay, so there, here's the good news, is that there are a number of uh, companies who have actually committed to increasing access to the formal economy and with numerical targets. So, for example, uh, MasterCard raised their hand and said, look, we have the technology. We now know what the problem is. We're committing to bringing 500 million new consumers mm -hmm. into the formal economy by 2020. We're also committed, we've also committed to bringing 40 million new micro-merchants, small businesses into yes. the formal economy. But we're not alone. Right. The World Bank is also committed to bringing in. Other companies like uh, Unilever, Coca-Cola, others are sort of saying, this makes sense for our supply chain yes. to make sure that people are all digitally connected. So this intersectionality 
of the solution and the problem are coming together in a way that allows us to actually say, we're going to solve this, the access problem, by 2020. That's going to happen. But making sure that we're answering the question, to what end and for what purpose, is the bigger, more interesting question that we at the center are seeking to understand. Hmm. Very interesting. So finally, I was wondering what advice do you have for the business school student of today? Many of them want to go out and make a difference in the world and change the world, make it a better place. What advice would you have for students today that are either thinking about business school or at business school? Well, I think it's a, it's a fantastic uh, track to pursue. I would say in the same way that we're looking at a company like MasterCard and identifying the assets, da- we've dis- data technology investment and expertise, think about the assets that you will bring to the conversation. So it's a fantastic motivation to want to change the world. But develop those hard skills that we all need to make sure that the change actually happens in the world. And that's what business school is about, is making sure that you're producing, but while you're here, you're developing the, the expertise, the knowledge, the ability to actually make a contribution when, yes. you, when you come over to a place like MasterCard, which I hope you'll consider. And it sounds to me that one of those skills that you're putting forth is the ability to analyze data Absolutely. and operate in a increasingly a data-robust environment. Exactly. And if, if it's not necessarily, I'm not saying you have to be a computer science major, although that'd be fantastic. Yes. But I think that for a business uh, business school grad, the idea of understanding what questions we need to be asking mm-hmm. and having an ability to source the people and to understand where you go to get the answers is enormously helpful. So this yeah. navigation, so the ability to be analytical and having the hard sciences around finance, statistics, computer awareness, technical capability, but the ability to make decisions and understand navigation and figure out where the resources are, where the problems are, where the opportunities are. Those are the types of people that I think are really going to be leading into the the next century. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Nice to to be here. Thanks for having me.